Okay, so here I am at Worldcon, and I found a gentleman named Chris Carson from an organisation called the Lunar Project. Hello, Chris. Hello. And uh, welcome to Fuzzy Logic. Can you tell me about what the Lunar Project is? Essentially, the Lunar Project represents an attempt to organise an expedition to colonise the moon in the very near future. And the moon. And Now, why would we want to colonise the moon? Well, there are sort of two answers to that. And the first answer is really an answer to the question, why would you want to colonize space, develop industrial plants in space, and so forth? And the second part is an answer to the question, why the moon specifically? And the answer to the second question is very simple. It is because that's what we can get to now. If you want to do anything in space, you need raw materials. Those materials either have to be lifted up from the Earth at great expense and effort, or you have to find them somewhere else. And the only place that we can easily get to where there are materials to work with is the moon. And, and how would we get to them, and what's your pref- the, what sort of method would you think is the most effective? Well, the stupid answer to that is, of course, rockets. Uh, Right at the present moment, there are a number of space launch vehicles which are commercially available, which could put, with appropriate landing systems, between one and five tons of payload on the lunar surface. And we have reason to believe that in the very near future, that capacity can be doubled or tripled. That's using systems that exist now or are currently under development by the organizations which are deploying the systems that exist now. For example, the Delta IV Heavy will launch 10 tons, plus a little bit, into an escape trajectory, which translates to over 5 tons landed on the lunar surface. And I happen to know from conversing with people involved in the Delta program office at Boeing that they are looking at several methods of increasing that capacity. And uh, what sort of colony or, or a settlement or establishment on the moon do you think would, we would be looking at? Well, the fundamental problem of colonization is always living off the land. And so when you want to colonize someplace, you have to adapt yourself to the conditions there, as we've seen in the history of the settlement of America and Australia, for example, by the Europeans. Many of the techniques the Europeans brought with them were not very well adapted to the conditions in the places they found themselves, and they had quite a bit of hardship for the first few years. Fortunately, we know much more about the moon than the early settlers in America and Australia did when they came to those continents. So, you know, we have studied the moon for many years. We have the results of extensive expeditions. And so we can say, for example, that the most likely plan for building anything on the moon is actually to bury it under the surface. That if you want to be protected from cosmic radiation and from meteorites, and if you want to escape the powerful temperature swings which occur as the moon passes into daylight and darkness over the course of uh, almost 30 days, you want to be underground. So a lunar colony actually would not look like much from the surface. You would have landing pads and a variety of industrial machinery which doesn't care about these things or needs to be on the surface for some reason, and some pits and so on where people are doing mining, this kind of thing. But the actual living spaces would be mostly underground. Uh, Now, lunar dust, I believe, is a particular issue because I was hearing some stories the other day about the Apollo astronauts and the dust was a real headache for them. How would you cope with the dust in a lunar colony? This is absolutely a concern. The moon is covered with a layer of what's called regolith, which is to say broken up rock, and some of the fragments are extremely fine. At the surface, the very, very fine rock dust, which has the characteristic that unlike earthly dust, it is made of extremely sharp-edged, irregularly shaped fragments. And so, for example... 
it gets into cloth. If you've ever had sand and carpet pile, you know that the sand gets into the carpet and you walk across the carpet and eventually the sand cuts the carpet off at the base. In the very same way, lunar dust has a tendency to chew up everything it comes in contact with. It's horribly destructive. But, by the same token, it gets trapped easily. So, if you're out on the surface and you have to walk through dust, you can be wearing a coverall, a smock or something, made of a fabric with a reasonably coarse weave, which will simply trap the dust. You take that coverall off and stuff it into the laundry or melt it down if it's made of glass fiber and make it into a new one, and you can solve that particular problem. Again, if the dust gets into the air, because of its special characteristics, it's fairly easily ionized. And so many of you may be familiar with the household air ionizer, which sucks the dust out of the air and deposits it on a screen. In this, we could do the very same thing on the moon, and then you wash the screen off with water, and in that way, the dust doesn't get back into the air again, which, of course, is always the weak link of household dust systems. How many times have you emptied your vacuum cleaner into the dustbin only to have so much of the stuff come flying back out? Oh, I, I avoid that by not vacuuming it at home. But uh, it has a particular smell, I believe. The Apollo astronauts reported that when it was fresh, it smelled like burning gunpowder. Oh, like, uh, like a sulfur smell? Well, not exactly, but very sharp. And we believe this is because over the eons, ultraviolet from the sun and cosmic rays have produced high quantities of free radicals at the exposed surfaces. So iron ions and magnesium ions and aluminum ions. And of course, as you may know, these things are, they have a very strong affinity for oxygen. And so they actually, it is very much like breathing smoke. Oh, and, and the stuff oxidizes when you bring it into the uh, carbon atmosphere. Exactly. Now, on the moon, what sort of uh, resources are there that the uh, colony might harvest? The single biggest one is oxygen. About 50% of the mass of the moon is oxygen because the moon is composed of the same kind of rocks as the crust of the Earth, which are, of course, chemically silicon dioxide, aluminum oxide, titanium dioxide, iron oxide, magnesium oxide, and so on. Most people never stop to think about it, but most of the mass of your body is actually oxygen. Water is eight-ninths oxygen, H2O, right, the chemical formula. Hydrogen has atomic mass one, oxygen has atomic mass 16. So out of nine weights of water, eight of that is accounted for by oxygen. And, and uh, do you think we'd be able to source water up there as well? There are favorable prospects for that. There are deposits of water, ice, and other more exotic substances, such as methane and various alcohols, in permanently shadowed areas near the poles, and probably in cold traps closer to the equator, in the shadows of boulders and that kind of thing. There is also quite a bit of hydrogen in the soil, and hydrogen combined with free radical oxygen to make water and hydroxyl radical in the soil at uh, mid-latitudes and higher. It mostly gets baked out by the sun at you know, under the equator, but at higher latitudes, there's quite a bit of that, which we've only recently discovered. We've known the hydrogen was there for a long time, and most of the investigators over the years have detected traces of water and dismissed them as experimental contamination or error. The, cause one of the recent space probes detected this again, and the investigators were trying to get rid of this particular data point, but they went back and looked at the data sets collected by dozens of previous probes and found it was there in all of them and realized it might actually be something real instead of just a mistake. So the fact is there's quite a bit of water on the moon, which we've been simply ignoring for about 40 years. Oh, but no, uh, no bubblers where you can go for a quick drink. In terms of priority, would you say that you would go to the moon first and then to Mars? You almost have to for a fairly simple reason. With current technology, 
it's very difficult to get to Mars. Firstly, you have to take what's called a Hohmann transfer orbit, so-called after Walter Hohmann, the city architect of Essen in Germany, who was the first person to work out interplanetary transfer orbits in the 1920s. Now, the Hohmann orbit to Mars takes nine months, and it's 26 months between opportunities of doing it, which means that if anything goes wrong, you have to be able to put up with it for three solid years before there's any chance of getting any assistance, not to speak of getting back, which takes even longer. In the same way, when you get to Mars, it turns out you can't land. That with current rocketry techniques, there's a limited size to the payload, as well as a limit of weight. There's a limited geometrical size, and it turns out that the aeroshell that you need to use the Martian atmosphere as a descent brake if you have more than about a ton of payload on the largest rocket we can launch now, you actually hit the ground before you, before you cross below the speed of sound. Which means that Mars is a problem we're not prepared to tackle right at the moment. Now, after we get to the moon and we live there for a few years, we'll be developing all the time techniques to become more and more independent of Earth and techniques which are more and more refined for the space environment so that we can have the safety margins we need to be confident of getting to Mars. And, of course, once we're working in free space, we can make aeroshells and wings and parachutes and what have you as large as we want because we don't have to worry about lifting them off of Earth because we're building them in space. I personally believe that the first expedition to Mars will leave from the moon or near lunar space 10 years after the settlement of the moon. Ah, now, um, various people imagine that we would live on a colony on the moon or somewhere like that because Earth becomes uninhabitable because we've made such a mess of the place. Can you imagine that kind of scenario? I really prefer to think that we can avert that kind of scenario, that with access to resources of material and energy from space, for example, solar power satellites, which promise an almost unlimited amount of energy with no pollution whatsoever, with access to nickel-iron from the asteroids and this kind of thing, so we don't need to dig out coal and iron ore and burn fossil fuels to make metal to build our buildings and our what-have-you. I believe that we can improve conditions on the Earth so much that we don't have to talk about last resorts of that nature. On the other hand, it has to be admitted there is a lot of thinking going on these days about worst cases, and I would like to point out, if civilization were to fall on Earth, I think it's our responsibility to make sure that it can rise again. And perhaps the most effective method of doing that, you may have heard of the seed banks which are being developed now to preserve the important species of plants against a global agricultural catastrophe or something of this nature. We could have what you might call a technological and cultural seed bank, because the moon, of course, is unlikely to suffer very much from whatever disasters overtake the Earth. So we could have a place on the moon where, if you like, folk tales and ancestral memory would preserve the memory that there was a place you could go to get the information you needed to build a technological society so that people who were on the entry level would work towards space travel instead of warring against each other or what have you, and they would go to the moon and get that information and get the machinery and so forth that they need to advance their civilization without going through the disorders of the Industrial Revolution, for example, which are responsible for so much of the trouble we're having now.
Yeah, so a much simpler solution, look after the planet we've got rather than just bail out. Now, yesterday when I was talking to you, you told me a good little anecdote about the Apollo 11 mission, about how they're coming into land, and they didn't get to the spot they thought they were going to get. And you had a bit more of a story than I've been able to tell on Fuzzy Logic in the past about that. Can you uh, really tell us again what that is? What happened then? Well, it's well known, I suppose, that the Apollo 11 lunar module landed somewhere completely different from where they expected. They were about 30 kilometers away, such that it actually took until after they took off for the people in Houston to figure out exactly where they'd been, which was rather embarrassing. The reasons for this are complex. Firstly, the moon is very lumpy gravitationally, so to find yourself in an orbit around it, it's a little trickier to find out exactly where you are than is the case, for example, when you're in orbit around the Earth, even if you've got good landmarks. But when the Apollo 11 lunar module separated from the command and service modules, they weren't entirely sure they'd be able to stick the landing. And so it was necessary to be prepared for a quick return to orbit. This is one of the reasons why the Apollo architecture was set up the way it was, with the first landing sites being on the equator, because on the equator you could go down and come back up again and meet with the spacecraft that was still in orbit without spending any time lining up your orbital elements. Now, Buzz Aldrin, who was the lunar module pilot, which meant he didn't actually do any piloting, that was all down to Armstrong, who had the actual controls, but Aldrin was essentially the navigator for the lunar module, and his response to this, he was known as Dr. Rendezvous. He actually got a doctorate from MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, on the subject of orbital rendezvous, and his dissertation is marvelous. If you ever want to read it, it's available over the Internet. And it contains an enormous appendix of how to work out really difficult orbital rendezvous problems with nothing but a stopwatch and a sextant. Wow, our old-timers amongst us will remember the old moon lander game that you could play on the computer. Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's a very interesting problem, but the Apollo 11 landing, they weren't sure they could stick it. And so Dr. Aldrin left both radars turned on. They had a radar which measured their distance to the surface and the speed they were approaching it. Very important information, of course, if you want to land. They also had a second radar which measured how far they were from the command module, which was sort of on the top. There's a radar on the top and a radar on the bottom. Dr. Aldrin left them both on in case they had to return to the command module in an emergency. What he didn't realize, because nobody had done this in any of the simulations they had done, was that this would overload the computer. Now, if you listen to a recording of the Apollo 11 landing, you will hear that they went through a series of computer alarms. The reason was that the computer was overloading due to having too much data pour into it. This distracted Armstrong and Aldrin while they were attempting to land, with the result that they only realized where they were at sort of the last minute that they were going to setting down to land in the middle of a boulder field instead of where they intended to land. And so Armstrong had to veer off and land considerably long with the result that they were down to about 15 seconds worth of fuel by the time they actually landed. They were actually approaching the mark where they would have been required by mission planning to drop the descent stage, trigger the ascent engine, and return to orbit. And, and he is cool as a cucumber. Now, you've given me some audio of the moon landing, and I'm going to play that on Fuzzy Logic in coming shows. Now, I just want to go back to uh, an earlier conversation we were having about uh, getting up into space, and you are talking about the new rockets, the Delta Four, I think it was, and, uh, but, but you didn't mention, or I didn't ask you about the, uh, the lift, the, uh, the one that's proposed by Arthur C. Clarke. 
The good old space elevator proposal, or the orbital tower as some have called it, and it even has other names. That is a remarkable proposal. Many people have studied it over the years, and it has one really striking characteristic which is that it requires an immense amount of mass. Now, it's becoming practical these days in a sense because the calculations were always done on the basis of what the engineers and people involved in it called monocrystalline diamond fiber, the idea that you could spin a strand out of diamond, which, of course, is essentially the strongest known material. Now, with carbon nanotubes, which are a material based on Buckminster fullerene, which is now being developed, it appears possible to create something with approximately those material properties. So, in principle, it becomes possible to build the space elevator. The problem is it still requires tens or hundreds of thousands of tons of this material, which has to be lifted to geosynchronous orbit. In other words, more material than has been put in Earth orbit in the whole history of the space age. Now, the result of this is that the transportation system you would need in order to build the space elevator would actually have so much capacity that you wouldn't need the space elevator. <laughs> What's well, so that not worth doing? Not for the foreseeable future. Now, once we have large-scale asteroid mining, large-scale space colonization, given that the space elevator makes very much easier the problem of getting things down to the Earth as well as up from the Earth, it may be worth revisiting. But it is worth noting that there are some serious problems associated with it, one of them being what happens if it breaks. Uh, yes, and what happens if an airplane flies into it, of course. Or a satellite hits it, or a meteorite, which happens to be passing through Earth's space, hits it. The, one of the problems with the space elevator is that it is not friendly to other satellites in Earth orbit. Because almost any possible satellite orbit will pass through the space elevator at some point. Oh, oops. I wonder whether high-altitude balloons might be a way of hoisting some of the stuff up, at least part of the way. That has actually been studied extensively. In the 1950s, there was a thing called the Raccoon, which was actually a combination rocket balloon system used by the United States Navy for high-altitude uh, sounding rockets. They discovered they had a little rocket which might go up five kilometers if you launched it from sea level, but if you launched it from a balloon at an altitude of 10 kilometers, it would go up 500 kilometers. Uh, now another thing I've wondered about, too, so assuming you've got this cable up there, you've got this geostationary satellite at the very end of it, when you start pulling on it, aren't you going to pull the uh, satellite back down to Earth? Actually, most this is a known problem with the space elevator, and it's the reason why most proposals include a massive counterweight, either a trapped asteroid or something of that kind, which has been moved into geosynchronous orbit, or else a length of cable that goes beyond geosynchronous orbit. Actually, the dynamics require the cable beyond geosynchronous orbit has to be three times as long as the one that reaches down to the Earth. In other words, geosynchronous orbit is about 40,000 kilometers. The other end of the cable has to be 120,000 kilometers above geosynchronous orbit, which which actually means that it serves as a kind of a slingshot for throwing things out into the solar system. Oh, that would be cool. Now, can you imagine the ride up there in this thing with big glass windows? You could have a cup of coffee in the way and look at the sky on the way. Which, of course, is the idea behind the whole project. Not that we're going to create a lot of new organizations, but that we're going to bring together all the people who are already working on this. And there are many people working on these problems, such as the teams for the Google Lunar X Prize. Actually, one thing I didn't ask you before I let you go is, uh, what's your personal connection here? I mean, uh, are you an interested bystander or are you involved more deeply in some way? I am one of the prime movers, I would say. Uh, I am the kind of person who considers this the single most important thing I could be doing with my time, and so all the time that I can possibly devote to it, I do. And as a result, I'm one of the major movers of the, of the project. 
Now, if we want to uh, follow up more of what you've been telling us, do you have a website? Yes, indeed. The easiest thing is to go to www.lunarcc.org, L-U-N-A-R-C-C, for Lunar Coordinating Committee. Okay, well, Christopher Carson, thank you very much for talking to Fuzzy Logic. Thank you. I'm glad to do it.